Okay, Jesse, last week's coyote skull soccer was a lot to process. What's the story this week? When a controversial politician mysteriously stops breathing, suspicion falls on her nurse husband. Questions begin to get raised about her previous husband's death as well. And later, a homicidal tragedy strikes her next of kin. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Cray. And this is Love Murder. Jesse, welcome back everyone to Love Murder, a podcast about big ambition, bad marriages, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. So Thank you guys. As always, every week you are phenomenal and you bring me so much joy. And also if you are new to the show, if you're one of those wonderful new people that have come in because our listeners are so awesome, welcome. Welcome to Love Murder. We're so happy you're here. Yes, we are. We know that there's lots of true crime choices out there in the podcast world. So we are honored that you have given us a shot. So let's not screw it up, Andy. Why don't we jump right into the story then and give the people what they want? On July 8th, 2006, Janine Coward awoke with a start. She'd been having the strangest dream. In it, she saw a woman named Kathy Augustine, the Nevada State Controller, standing across the state capitol building, and she braced herself to cross paths with her former employer. Janine had suffered tremendous anxiety due to the so-called wrath of Kath during her tenure as Kathy's speechwriter. She had been pushed past the limits of normal employment and into illegal duties. The relationship between the women hadn't improved when Janine had been instrumental in initiating an investigation that resulted in Kathy's impeachment. Ah. While Kathy had dismissed Janine before with a general contempt, she now held a pointed hatred towards her. In the dream, Janine flinched as the 50-year-old politician with the perfect blonde blowout approached. But instead of yelling at her, Kathy smiled warmly and wrapped Janine in a big hug. The dream melted away as Janine blinked awake. How strange, she thought. Little did she know that only across town, Kathy's fourth husband, ER nurse Chaz Higgs, had just made a desperate call to 911 at 6.43 in the morning. It's my wife. I don't know what's happened to her. She's not breathing. Within six minutes, the fire department and two paramedics pulled up in front of the Reno home where a man in his early 40s was waving them down. Yeah, six minutes. That's fast. I always love when we you specify how quickly they got there and then we can take a minute to... To appreciate emergency services. The firemen discovered a blonde woman in pajamas lying on the bed, and she appeared to be deceased. They laid her down on the floor, and paramedics performed heroically. Paramedic Ben Pratt discovered that the woman's heart had indeed stopped. She was not breathing, she had no pulse, and her pupils were dilated and fixed. 
but he refused to give up. He began artificial respiration with his partner and injected her with epinephrine and started a line for atropine. Also, guys, there's going to be a lot of medical jargon in this. And as one very sweet reviewer who worked in the medical field pointed out, we are not always so 100% on our medical term pronunciation. So please bear with us, all of you wonderful nurses and doctors who listen to this show. At 6.50 a.m., Kathy Augustine, one of Nevada's most controversial political figures ever, came back to life or at least her heart began to beat once more. She was hardly out of the woods, still fully comatose. They rushed her to the hospital where the staff would battle for Kathy's survival. In the wake of the emergency call and its aftermath, questions would be raised about Kathy's younger husband, Chaz, and about her previous husband's questionable death. Some years later, Kathy's daughter, Dallas, and her wife would suffer more tragic violence. This is a story about malevolent medicine, torrid love, jealousy, and hatred that spans families and generations. It's a legacy of murder, if you will. Okay, are you ready, Andy? Yeah. I mean, legacy of murder. Whoa. A legacy of murder. Yeah, I started getting into this story, and even the book that I used, which was called Poisoned Love by Carlton Smith, did not mention what happened afterwards with Kathy's daughter and her wife, Jessie. So I will get into that later. So it, it was kind of, it took me by surprise. Let's start talking about Kathy. Kathy Alfano was born on May 29th, 1956, the eldest daughter of three kids born to Father Phil, a military vet and pharmaceutical sales rep, and homemaker Mother Kay in La Palma, California. The Alfanos were a warm, loving, conservative Catholic Italian-American family, and Kathy had a happy upbringing. She was considered popular, bright, and motivated during her time at John F. Kennedy High School, which she graduated from in 1974. Kathy went on to her father's alma mater, Occidental College, where she was selected for a prestigious Lyndon B. Johnson Fellowship in Washington, D.C., where she served as a congressional intern. It was during this internship that she got the politics bug hard and she vowed to someday serve public office herself. Huh. Yeah, she really, really wanted to get back to Washington, D.C. as a congressperson in her own right someday. I always wondered how those thoughts start to happen because I have never had any interest. No, me neither. Me neither. And I'm so glad Nathaniel doesn't either because I would make the worst politician's wife. <laughs> Lots of skeletons in my closet. I would definitely not like that. But yeah, she she really, I think it was definitely the internship, but they said that she was very civically minded from a young age. And John F. Kennedy High School in La Palma was apparently one of the very first, if not the first high schools to be named after John F. Kennedy after his assassination. So I think that they said that it was almost like politics was like baked into the school, you know? Okay. Yep. Yeah. After college graduation, she began to work for Western Airlines, which would be later bought by Delta, where she met and married an aircraft mechanic named Gary Voss in 1979 when she was 23. Only a few months after the wedding, Kathy gave birth to her only daughter, Dallas, in October of the same year. So sounds like it was a bit of a shotgun wedding. Mm -hmm. Also, shout out to Delta. <laughs> shout out to Delta. Yep. Unfortunately, only four months after Dallas was born, Gary Voss began having an affair and left Kathy for the other woman. Ew, that's so fucked up. That's four months. So, a, with a four-month-old baby. I honestly could not 
having that be so fresh, I could not even imagine. You're also still postpartum. No, it's so, it's so fucked up. Yeah, Kathy was not well. In August of 1980, the other woman filed a restraining order alleging that Kathy was harassing her at home and work by showing up unexpectedly, throwing fits, as well as making threatening phone calls at all hours of the day and night. Kathy retorted in court that she had an 11-month-old baby with the man that the complainant was cohabitating with, and she had a right to communicate with her co-parent. Yeah, sorry, babe. Yeah, poor Dallas, too. The baby was getting, like, hauled to this woman's house in the middle of the night, too, when she was, like, banging down the door, that poor child. The judge issued a restraining order, and not long after that, Gary and Kathy were officially divorced, and he moved away to Arizona, where he married the other woman. The deadbeat provided little to no support for Dallas and would never be a part of her life. Wow, what a piece of shit. What a piece of shit. Fueled by her desire to make a better life for herself and her daughter, Kathy leaned heavily on her parents to babysit while she worked days at the airline and put herself through a master's program in public administration from California State University at night. Wow. Yeah, that is some serious dedication. Yep. Also, shout out to all you single parents, man. Andy has been without her husband for nearly two weeks now, and it has been a struggle. Yeah. (laughs) We've had a few additional obstacles as well, but... Yeah, there's been like an emergency room visit. We've had a sick cat. I say we, as in I'm going through this with you. Well, you kind of of are. (laughs) I kind of am. (laughs) We cannot tell you enough that single parents are heroes. And luckily, you know, Andy's husband will eventually come back, hopefully. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, (laughs) No, No, single parents are superheroes. Yes, superheroes. So hats off to you guys. By 1984, Kathy had achieved her master's and had moved up the ranks into management where she was responsible for scheduling flight crews, including the pilots. She had a brief six-month marriage to a Marine named Kevin Hone. But the marriage was cut short due to infidelity issues, though I could not find clarity on whose infidelity caused the issues. Oh, might have been Kathy. In February of 1988, Kathy shocked the heck out of her family when she announced only a couple months after her divorce that she was already planning to remarry. This time to a Delta pilot named Chuck Augustine, who was 16 years her senior. So Chuck was born in 1940 and grew up in Northern California in Marin, actually, which is gorgeous. I love Marin. And he was an absolute football star. He's like a super big guy. He's 6'6", and he was over 250 pounds his entire life. Oh, my God. Huge. He's like a refrigerator. So he got a football scholarship to Notre Dame, which is also huge. That's a huge football school. But while playing for the university, he blew out both his knees pretty badly. Yeah, that's what happens when you're that big. Yeah. So it ended up being a career-ending injury, unfortunately. Many had believed that Chuck would have gone on to a successful professional football career if it hadn't happened. Instead, he enlisted in the Air Force after college and trained as a fighter pilot. He was married to his first wife in 1965, and they had three children, a girl first and then two sons. In 1968, he left the military to fly commercial for Western Airlines. By the time Chuck met Kathy in 1985, he was just coming off his own divorce. The divorce had been hard on Chuck. As much as he had grown apart from his wife of 20 years, He also was a Catholic and he didn't necessarily believe in divorce. 
But at some point, it seemed like the marriage was completely unsalvageable. So the couple did finally call it quits. Both Kathy and Chuck were rebounding, but it did seem like a really good match. It was like kind of an opposites attract type of thing because Kathy at this point was a young, beautiful, like willowy, vivacious 30-year-old. And she had like kind of a very sparky temperament, very fiery. And Chuck was 46 at this point. He was also very grounded, calm, and kind. So they just really evened each other out. Chuck was a little bit older and he was definitely happy to let Kathy kind of run the show and call the shots in the marriage. Because she had scheduled him at Delta, whenever people asked how they had met, he'd say, oh, she was my boss, which is cute. Yeah. The Alvanos were surprisingly delighted by the pairing. It was also great for little Dallas, whom Chuck formally adopted. Chuck's two sons were teenagers and they were somewhat less enthused about their father's new bride. Dallas was eight or nine and both boys felt like Kathy was overly harsh to her daughter. This is what Greg Augustine said about it in the book Poisoned Love. If you've ever seen a puppy kicked a thousand times when she just wants to put her head in your lap, well, that was Dallas, Greg recalled. Eventually, she'll just give up and not care. Kathy was demanding, even cruel to her daughter, the two Augustine brothers thought. Nor were the brothers alone. The Augustine's next-door neighbors in Las Vegas, John Satoris and his wife Dottie, thought so too. Sometimes, John said later, Kathy could be downright mean when it came to Dallas, threatening her with dire punishment for the slightest transgression. It was as if Kathy wanted to prove to Chuck that she could be an effective parent. So the family moved into a really ritzy neighborhood of Las Vegas. Apparently, Elizabeth Taylor even reportedly had a home there, and they made great friends in the community. After the couple made the difficult decision to not have any more children, which was kind of on Chuck, he was pushing 50 at this point. His eldest daughter was already out of the home. He had two older teenage sons. He was not going to do the baby thing again. So Kathy, now like looking at her daughter growing up, decided to finally throw herself into making her political aspirations come true. In 1992, she ran for Nevada State Assembly and she won. Ever ambitious, she decided to run for Nevada State Senate only two years later in 1994. But here she got into some trouble for some potentially racist and anti-Semitic campaign tactics. Not good. Not good. I'm going to say no bueno. The first controversy came during her assembly run when she produced a campaign flyer that seemed to purposely juxtapose blonde white Kathy with a grainy photo of her opponent, who was a black woman named Dora Harris. Many believed it was a clear ploy for, you know, the white conservative vote or racist vote in the overwhelmingly white and historically conservative state of Nevada at the time. And it seemed to have worked. Next, during her state Senate run, she was up against a Democratic incumbent named Lori Lippman Brown, who was Jewish. In her campaign advertising, Kathy asserted that Brown actively opposed prayer and refused to participate in the Pledge of Allegiance during legislative sessions. Wow. Yeah, this was untrue. So what had really happened in this situation was that Lori Lippman Brown 
was not even very religiously Jewish. She was ethnically Jewish, but she had asked basically the Nevada state legislature to do a prayer that was non-denominational. And I guess that they had refused and they were still doing a Christian prayer. So she asked if she could sit out the prayer and then join her seat again when, you know, legislature got rolling. Um, And so in so doing this, I guess that they followed the prayer directly with the Pledge of Allegiance. So she was still making her way back to her seat for the Pledge of Allegiance. So they were using like some video proof of her being absent from both as this big, she's anti-prayer, she's anti-patriotism, she won't even do the Pledge of Allegiance. And Kathy kind of made this mudslinging the cornerstone of her campaign. That's so gross. Super gross. And two other senators had backed Kathy up and also participated in the campaign. So when Brown lost the election to Kathy, she ended up suing all three of those senators. And it was eventually settled out of court. And Kathy had to issue a public apology. As part of the deal, it also seemed that Brown had to also release a letter saying that she did not believe that the three senators involved in the lawsuit were anti-Semitic. Okay, this is so messy. Very messy. Kathy's messy and complicated um, and not entirely a good person. I think we've already seen and you'll see more of. Still not satisfied with being a state senator, Kathy ran for state controller and she had actually wanted to go for Congress like she did when she was, you know, a younger girl. But the higher ups at the Republican Party convinced her to go for the easy elect. She'd be replacing a 76-year-old Republican incumbent and she could use it as a stepping stone to greater political office. In Nevada, state controller is one of two positions that control the state's money. The other was the state treasurer, and essentially the two are watchdogs over one another. She was easily elected, but disliked by the outgoing state treasurer, who reportedly cornered her after she'd been sworn in and told her to not, quote, fuck it up. Whoa. Yeah, very intense. And Kathy told people that she suspected that the outgoing treasurer and his protege, who was taking over the role, had some scam where they might have been funneling state funds to themselves somehow. But that was never proven. It was just conjecture on Kathy's part. The treasurer in question said that he did say that to Kathy, but it was not because he was doing some shady shit. It was because he believed that because she was not an accountant that she was unqualified to be the state's principal auditor. Whoa. Yeah. So as ignominious as her rise might have been, she was still the state's first ever female state controller, so that's something. Things were not perfect, however, because the position required her to be located in Carson City for most of the year, and long-distance marriage suited neither of the Augustines. In May of 1999, Kathy bought a house in a gated community in Reno with Chuck co-signing a loan that was subsidized by the VA because he was a veteran. Six months after the loan, however, Chuck signed the whole house over to Kathy in her own right. So many felt like this was the first step in what Kathy was making towards a separation from Chuck. And his sons later felt like they thought maybe she forged his signature to get the loan because it was a special rate for veterans and then signed the house over to herself and that Chuck didn't know he was even a part of it. Okay. So Dallas was now out of the house as well. She had gotten an athletic scholarship for elite golf to San Diego State University. Oh my God. 
So that was good. But it seems like she had had some issues. It was kind of implied that she might have partied too much. And unfortunately, she dropped out. Well, she's going to San Diego State. (laughs) I know. It's a good place to party. Yeah. (laughs) Well, mother and daughter rarely spoke anymore, especially during Kathy's first couple years as state controller. Kathy was frustrated with Dallas, feeling like she herself had managed to obtain a master's degree while working full time and being a single mother, while Dallas could not manage to finish her undergraduate degree with all of the advantages in the world. So the relationship would remain strained for most of Kathy's life. Oh, that's sad. I mean, I feel like party versus golf is different than like doing what you need to do to like provide for your daughter. Yeah, it's it's really different. I also think Dallas had a very hard upbringing. I mean, yeah. her biological father was never involved in her life. It sounds like her mother was way too, way too strict and maybe downright cruel to her. It was it was a tough way to grow up. So I, I think she dealt with a lot of the issues stemming from her childhood for her entire life as well. Yep. So Chuck had gained some weight. He was now tipping the scales at over 330 pounds. And that resulted in him failing a pilot physical and getting oh, grounded. No. Yeah. And at this point, he was approaching the mandatory retirement age anyhow. So he decided to hang up his wings for good at the age of 61 in February of 2001. Chuck was super excited about his retirement. I mean, he had been traveling so much for so many years. I mean, he was a commercial pilot for 33 years and an Air Force pilot before that, you know? Wow. Yeah. He was ready to just chill at home. And Kathy had assumed that when he retired, that he would come and stay with her in Reno. So she was pissed when he said he just wanted to stay at home in Las Vegas. So when she was home with him in Vegas, she would berate Chuck for enjoying his retirement the way he wanted to. He wanted to sit in his recliner and watch football. It's like these simple pleasures that he had missed out by like flying on Sundays and Mondays before, you know? And she just thought he was lazy and she ended up just being really cruel and mean to Chuck during his retirement. His son said that Kathy often put him down. She would remind him now that he was a nobody and that she was someone important. She was particularly nasty about his weight, even insulting him in front of guests and family members. Not cool. Very not cool. She went so far as to tell Chuck's son, Greg, I really hope you don't get as fat as your father in front of him. (gasps) Wow. That's not, that's not okay. That's just not what you do to anyone, let alone someone you are supposed to love and you've been in a marriage with for many, many years. That's just like the disrespect thing too in front of the kid. Like that's not cool. Yeah, definitely not cool. So Kathy's brother later said that Kathy would also call him complaining about Chuck around this time. She would complain about his lack of appeal and their non-existent sex life. Well, it seemed like Kathy's sex life was still active because employers would later allege that she had two flings with men that she had met in her capacity as state controller. (gasps) What? Yeah, yeah. But she was sleeping with these guys far from home, though, because one guy was a Dutch man that she met while she was at a Harvard political seminar. And the other fling was an Israeli man that she met while on state business in Israel. Whoa, Kathy's got a thing for the international man, huh? Yeah, she's going international for her affair partners over here. Although I think it's also probably 
her being pretty smart politically because an affair would be a scandal. So she's like, I'm going to do real far away people, you know? Yeah, but it's still a scandal just because they're far away doesn't make it less of a scandal. Indeed. After 13 years of marriage, it was pretty clear that Kathy was done with Chuck. Chuck fought for the marriage as long as he could. The Catholic and him had a hard time swallowing a second divorce, but eventually he realized that he couldn't fight it forever. So they had already begun discussing, you know, the separation of marital assets when Kathy surprised him by backing off the divorce and saying that she wanted to reconcile. Coincidentally, this occurred when she was up for re-election in 2002. Ah! Nothing like a political motive here. Chuck's sons suspected it was only so she could present a family-friendly image at the polls. It's so gross. I don't know why politics have to be like that. It's so gross. I'd also much rather, you know, elect somebody who is authentic and honest about themselves and their life rather than somebody pretending to be some image that they think that voters want. Well, things were not going smoothly in Kathy's professional life either. By her employees' accounts, she was a really wretched boss in general, but she was also having them, as government-paid officials, work on her campaign during office hours, which Ooh. is illegal. Big no-no. Yep. One employee, a woman named Jennifer, was expected to be at the office at 8 a.m. every morning, though Kathy herself would show up much, much later. So Kathy would be at home or she'd be in Vegas. Like partying? Well, her, that was where her other house was in Vegas. And she would call at like 7.50 or 8 in the morning every single morning to make sure that Jennifer, who was her executive assistant, was at her desk. And if she had to leave a, a voicemail because, you know, Jennifer was like putting coffee on or using the restroom, she would scream at her. She'd be like, you're never there when I need you to be. You need to get your ass to your desk right now. And then if Kathy was in town, she would show up like hours later and then she would want to work late into the evening and she would expect that Jennifer would stay with her. That's when you say go ahead and fuck right off. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this was made even more stressful because Jennifer had a diabetic cat that needed to have insulin injections at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and would get gravely ill if those injections were late, you know? So one day, you know, she's I'm being made I'm not gonna like to where this is going. No, you're not. She's being made to stay in the office late. And she's like, Kathy, I really have to go. You know I have to leave before 7 p.m. so I can get home to give my cat the injection. And Kathy said, according to Jennifer, that cat's interfering with your life. You need to just kill it. Oh, my God. Okay, Cruella DeVille. So uh, Kathy is not a nice person. Janine, who I mentioned in the beginning, who legitimately had that bizarre dream at the moment that Kathy was dying, she would later say that the work environment was worse than the devil wears Prada. Whoa. Yeah. So Janine eventually quit and she reported Kathy to the Nevada Attorney General for using taxpayer dollars to salary employees who are actually working on her campaign. There we go. I mean, that's what happens. Treat people poorly and it comes back to bite you in the ass. It's a lot easier to be nice and respectful to people. Absolutely. Especially people who are working for you, you know? 
While they were investigating the initial claims, Kathy made even more of a mess when she hired a guy named Art Ingram in January of 2003 and allegedly sexually harassed him. Wow. Just really hitting the trifecta here. He claimed that Kathy had tried to interest him in sex, even pulling up her shirt to show him her bra at one point, and implied more than once that his employment was conditional on him having sex with her. So... He said that he was fired only three months into the job because he had turned Kathy down. Well, Kathy countered that his accusations were retaliatory because she had fired him because he was bad at his job and interfered with her communication with other staff. So, yeah, a lawsuit was never pursued. And there was a reason, there was a legal reason for this, like based on some legality of his employment, he like couldn't sue or something. It was, it was weird. So that's frustrating. So that's why I say allegedly, because these were never, you know, this was never brought in any formal court or anything. By early July 2003, Chuck knew that Kathy had been running around on him and he reluctantly began to work out a fair division of marital assets with her. Chuck planned to go and live with his son, Greg, in California after the divorce, and Greg was actually remodeling his home to better accommodate his father. Oh, Which is super sweet. Unfortunately, though, Chuck would never move in with his son because he experienced a stroke and required hospitalization. No. So the first stroke that he had was minor enough that Chuck didn't realize, actually, that he had had a stroke. He remembered that he had a bad fall. And then in the days after the fall, he realized he was unable to recall certain words or do basic math. Okay. So he went to the hospital where they prepped him for an MRI to see how bad the stroke had been. Yep. And right before he was going into the machine, he suffered a major stroke. Whoa, that's wild. So he was at the hospital? He was already at the hospital, which is great because, you know, they could take care of him, but it was a really devastating stroke this time. And when he came out of it, he was no longer able to speak. And they believed that he was also not seeing, that he was had been blinded somehow because he seemed like he couldn't see. And he was really disoriented and thrashing to the point that they had to sedate him. So of course, Greg and his brother rushed to be by their father's side. And Kathy did come home to Las Vegas to help out as well. And as the weeks went by, it did look like Chuck was improving. So that was good. But Greg was becoming concerned because he noticed that Kathy was giving away or otherwise purging all of Chuck's belongings from the home. Oh, my God. While he's recovering from a stroke. Yeah. And Greg was like, wait, the doctors tell me he's doing better. You know, he's going to recover from this. He's obviously going to need a lot of therapy, but he's supposed to get better. Uh, So he had no idea why she was doing that. And at one point, she basically said, like, you know, your dad and I have been having problems. So who's going to take care of him? Okay. And Greg was like, totally disgusted with her. And he's like, of course I will. I'm going to take care of my dad. She's like, great. Thanks. Don't worry. I won't just like, you know, run away on you. Yeah. Wow. Well, he became even more alarmed when he caught Kathy flirting with his father's male nurse, a man named Chaz Higgs, several times. He would later compare their behavior to a couple high school kids flirting. He said that he even found them together in the hospital cafeteria once, doing what looked like playing footsie under the table. 
Andy, it's the new year, and I'm feeling like I want to try something different. Like I want to reinvent my style. So that's why I went to Ana Luisa Jewelry. Ana Luisa Jewelry is made for you and the planet in mind. They are 100% carbon and water neutral, but also really pretty if you ask me. Their versatile designs are perfect to mix and match and wear every day. I even layer my necklaces together now. I have such a hard time choosing just one to wear, so why not wear two or three? Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, has timeless jewelry for any occasion. A cute ring to show off at the grocery store when you pay for your groceries, a dainty bracelet for when you pick up an iced coffee, and a luxurious necklace that makes your friends think she's making a lot of money with a necklace like that. (laughs) But the best part is Ana Luisa jewelry starts at $39. The prices are incredible. With our code LOVEMURDER, you can get 40% off your order at shop.analuisa.com. At Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. Their pieces are the perfect gift for anybody on your list. A friend, a partner, a sister-in-law, a daughter to spoil. Plus, the gift guide on their website, along with their bestsellers page, are great destinations to browse most gifted options. So while you're getting yourself a new necklace, throw one in for your sister. Why not? You're getting 40% off anyway. Or your best friend, hint, hint. Hint, hint. Same. (laughs) New jewelry collections are released every Friday. Get yourself and your loved ones the perfect gift with up to 40% off. Check out Ana Luisa at shop.analuisa.com slash lovemurder. I know you'll love them. We discuss a lot of gritty details on this podcast, but you know what's not talked about enough? Poop. Yep. P-O-O-P. Shattering stigmas over here. Truth is, we could all probably be doing it better. Fact, two out of three Americans live with digestive discomfort, bloating, prolonged fullness, and poop issues. Enter Seed. Listen, Andy, I am a huge gut health nerd. It's something we've spent a ton of time in our house learning about and something I think the whole world will learn about in the years to come. Absolutely. And one thing that's super clear, not all probiotics are created equal. So what is the daily symbiotic? Well, it's a broad spectrum, two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic. A proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages. Systemic benefits beyond the gut. Proprietary engineered two-in-one capsule that protects probiotics through digestion to ensure delivery to the colon. And what does the daily symbiotic do for you? It supports benefits in and beyond the gut, including GI function, skin health, heart health, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, and micronutrient synthesis of vitamins B9 and B12. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder. So Greg was already grieving his father. And of course, he was, you know, stressed out about what the recovery was going to look like. And he was suspicious of the two lovebirds. But life did have to go on. So he was splitting his time between the Nevada hospital and his own home and job in Southern California. So he was sadly not there on August 19th, 2003, when his father, Chuck Augustine, was pronounced dead. What happened? So it looked like it was massive organ failure. They believed that there had been more damage than they had realized from the two strokes. That was the official line, at least. Okay. 
So things went from bad to worse when Greg and his brother Larry could not find Chuck's will. And prior to his stroke, Chuck had told Greg over the phone that he was leaving everything to his sons and had changed his will because, of course, he was planning on getting a divorce. On the day of the funeral, Greg kind of confronted Kathy about where the will was and if she had found it. And Kathy told him that Chuck had never written a will, but that he had told her he intended to leave all of his money to herself and her daughter Dallas because his children were going to get an inheritance from their mother. Ah, seems fishy. But without a will, it does go to the spouse. They're still legally married. So Kathy did inherit all of Chuck's assets, including his very generous pension for the airline. Greg was already appalled, but became incensed when he realized that Chaz Higgs, his dad's nurse, and Chaz's twin brother, Mike, attended the wake for his father. Um... Yeah. So he said he looked over and he was like, what the hell is my dad's nurse doing in my dad's house, drinking my dad's liquor? And even worse, Greg's wife went over to the bar, which is where Chaz and his brother were hanging out to pour herself a drink. And Chaz kind of hit on her and suggested that they, quote, fire up the jacuzzi at her father-in-law's wake. Ew. So ew, so ew. It, and also, it doesn't even matter that that's her father-in-law. And that's you're a at a, funeral you're at or a wake. wake. Yeah. Yeah, no. a wake is not a time for a jacuzzi talk. Jeez Louise. Yeah. So after that, Kathy and Greg got into a blistering fight. And this wasn't about Chaz per se. This was actually more about the fact that Greg had been in charge of filing Chuck's obituary And whether Greg did it or something happened at the newspaper, for whatever reason, Dallas had been listed as Chuck's son instead of Chuck's daughter in the obituary. Okay. Now, I think that this bothered Kathy, you know, more than it would bother another person who was like, oh, it's a typo. And probably it bothered Kathy more than Dallas herself because Kathy is a conservative Republican politician And Dallas had come out as a lesbian. (gasps) I thought you were going to say that. And that's amazing. Yeah. And Dallas also preferred to wear her hair short. And she liked to dress in a more classically masculine style, which from reports, Kathy had a really hard time accepting. And I don't know whether she was, you know, a bigot or if it wasn't the image she wanted to project, you know. But for whatever reason, it, it really did take a lot for Kathy to come around and accept Dallas. So she felt like this Dallas being listed as a son business was Greg lobbing an insult directly at Dallas and there for herself. Okay. So the fight about this obituary resulted in Kathy throwing Chuck's family out of the house at his own wake. What about Chaz? <laughs> Oh, Chaz is there. He's probably hot tubbing it right now. In the month after the wake, Greg ran a credit report for his father and a notation came back about Charles Francis Augustine, a.k.a. Chaz Higgs, which was clear evidence to Greg that Chaz was fraudulently using his father's credit. He also discovered that Kathy had sold his father's Lincoln Town Car to Chaz's twin brother, Mike, for way less than it was valued. 
Furious, he consulted a few lawyers to sue Kathy or Chaz, but he couldn't find anyone that wanted to take the case on. Eventually, he gave up after about three or four months, and he decided to push his ex-stepmother out of his mind and let karma do her bitchy worst. Good for him. Yeah, it takes a lot to just kind of like rise above and live and let live, you know? So meanwhile, Kathy's inner circle was quite surprised when she revealed that she had remarried in Hawaii only three weeks after Chuck's death. To Chaz. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The groom was none other than her late husband's nurse, Chaz Mother F. Higgs. Wow. Who is this guy? (laughs) The craziest thing is like Chaz is not my favorite diminutive of Charles, but his real name was William Charles Higgs. So he bypassed Bill, Billy, Will, Willie, like all of those names and landed on Chaz from his middle name. Yeah, so this guy was born on June 2nd, 1964 with his twin brother, Michael. His dad was a Marine who split up from his mother, Shirley, when the boys were 13 years old. Despite the divorce, the twins had a happy upbringing and a normal childhood in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Chaz graduated high school in 1982, and he joined the Navy, where he met and married a fellow Marine named Don Renee Brown in 1984. The marriage was short-lived due to Chaz's infidelity. No surprise there. No surprise there. In fact, he had begun sneaking around with wife number two, Kristen Gonzalez, before his divorce was finalized in 1988 and during the time that the marriage was still firmly on. Of course. He married Kristen in 1990 and he adopted Kristen's son from a previous relationship, but this marriage was even shorter and they divorced less than two years later in 1992. So Kristen did go on to marry a police officer who adopted her son as well, thereby releasing Chaz from his familial obligations. So they ended up happily ever after. Wife number two ended up with a solid father figure for her son. During a tour in Bahrain, Chaz met a lovely 20-something named Lorelai Guaco, who was from the Philippines. The two hit it off and Chaz brought Lorelai and her young daughter to the States. But Chaz had major money and fidelity issues, and this couple didn't last very long either. Chaz had filed for bankruptcy twice in the years between his second and third marriages. Whoa, that's a lot. A lot of bankruptcy. He was not good at money management. So he left the Navy around this time, and he received his associate's degree in nursing in 2002. After he got his degree, he moved to Las Vegas to begin his new career. According to his twin, Chaz moved to Vegas so he could be closer to Lorelai's daughter, whom he had also adopted. Just the daughter? Yeah, I don't know what was going on with Lorelai, but as far as I read, they were no longer in a relationship, but he did refer to Lorelai's daughter as his own. Okay. When he met Kathy, Chaz was working at Sunrise Hospital, which is where Chuck had been treated, and he was living in a converted bus in an RV park in East Las Vegas. These two eloped in Hawaii only three weeks after Chuck's death. Kathy's brother, Phil, was completely shooketh when he found out that they were married. Well, I was going to ask, is that like, that's not good for politics, eloping, is it? No. That that seems like unstable, in my opinion. And I eloped. I think that she wanted to be married. And I think she eloped to actually avoid the press that a big wedding would have caused. 
she didn't tell people exactly when they got married. She revealed it much later, which gave her more of an appropriate window to be a widow. So yeah, this is what her brother thought, uh, according to Poison's Love. He's just been an angel and he's swept me off my feet, Kathy said, and went on to extol Chaz's virtues excessively, according to Phil. And all this kind of garbage, Phil said, of his sister's praise of his new brother-in-law. My wife and I were just looking at each other. I mean, we were dumbfounded. It was, you know, you listened to her and it sounded like a 17-year-old girl. And I'm like, Kathy, what were you thinking? But I wished her well, you know, I said, I hope things work out. And I remember after that brunch, my mom saying to him, treat her right and that kind of stuff. It seemed like an odd combination, but he was a very polite guy, very respectful, pretty quiet. Phil and his wife, Mary, were particularly taken aback by Chaz's appearance, which seemed so incongruous compared to Kathy's usually conservative attire. My wife and I joked that he looked like one of the pet shop boys with his hair, you know? We're from that same generation. (laughs) Like 1986. And he had his hair all curled in the front and bleached. And we kind of made a joke about it. And obviously, we were also concerned because it had happened so quickly. I don't know about the Pet Shop Boys, but my feeling was that he looked kind of like uh, like a wannabe Justin Timberlake a la NSYNC at the beginning of the 2000s. Stop. Like the, he was like permed his hair and like bleached the front. And the overall result was kind of like he looked like a white trash mashup of Justin Timberlake, JC Chasas, and uh, serial killer Israel Keys. Oh my God. What a combination. Well, you guys, I'll put his picture up obviously on the Instagram and you'll see it. Uh, maybe a dash of Matthew Lillard in there. Uh, it's, it's something else. So yeah, the first three months of Kathy and Chaz's marriage were reportedly honeymoon blissful. But then karma and reality hit when Kathy was investigated for inappropriate conduct and wrongful termination of Art Ingram, as well as misappropriation of state funding for having her employees work on her campaign during government hours. Dude, people were just gleeful about Kathy's downfall. One columnist for the Las Vegas Review Journal wrote, Ms. Augustine was always politically ambitious and apparently her aspirations got the best of her. Even a neophyte should understand the obvious conflict in a sitting politician forcing public sector underlings to do campaign work on the clock. She should save the taxpayers time and treasure of an impeachment hearing and step down immediately. And another wrote, comeuppance is such a delightful Victorian word. It doesn't get enough use because it doesn't happen often enough. State controller Kathy Augustine is finally going to get hers. Yikes, it's almost like racist and anti-Semitic campaign tactics don't make you well-liked. Who would have thought? thought? The investigation uncovered enough evidence to proceed to trial. So the impeachment trial began November 29th, 2004, and it was pretty much a bloodbath. Kathy's attorney's defense of her was basically that she was admittedly a short-tempered and overly demanding boss and that the people who narked on her were just angry that they couldn't hang and had gotten fired. Oh, my God. And while her ex-employees were certainly disgruntled, it really did sound like they had good reason. Janine Coward testified, 
The atmosphere in the office was such that people came to work not knowing what was going to happen that day. Many of the employees told me that they dreaded coming to work or they could not sleep the night before. The atmosphere was such that you never knew what the environment was going to be. It kept everyone on edge. It was like a domestic abuse situation where the abused person feels like they're walking on glass all of the time. Even when they try to do what is right, it ends up being wrong, and you always felt on edge. You could not relax. The controller's office had some wonderful employees. They were dedicated. They were not people who tried to slough off work or waste time. Everyone was in such a state of turmoil and frustration. There were days it was just very difficult. Oh, God. Gross. More importantly, many employees testified to being asked to work on campaign matters during office hours, which, of course, is completely illegal, even if being a shitty boss isn't. Well, in the end, Andy, the karma juice fairy that Greg had wished for came and sprinkled a little bit on Kathy because she was impeached. <gasps> Woo! Shout out to episode one where Andy coined the term karma jizz fairy. <laughs> I think I just uh, called it the karma fairy and it was jizzing all karma all over. Yes, that was people. entirely what it was. Yeah, it was. That was a, a great one back when we used to drink when we did the episode. So if you guys have listened to Heck episode number one, <laughs> thank you. And I'm sorry. Kathy was fined $15,000 by the state ethics commissioner for using state personnel and equipment in her reelection campaign. And she was censured, but eventually allowed to return to her post as state controller. Man, things were not going well for Kathy in 2004. Even before she was officially impeached, the stress of the situation had made her barely one-year marriage to Chaz pretty miserable. As early as August 2004, Kathy told her neighbor that Chaz was already losing interest in her. She told him that Chaz had told her that she wasn't blonde enough or thin enough for him. Chaz, you're a dick. Yeah, I have to say, though... I think he's a huge dick, but this is exactly what she did to Chuck, you know? Yep. Yep. It's like, man. How does that feel? Feels bad, I bet. Um, <laughs> yeah. But she said that she wanted to make the marriage work. Things seemed to go from bad to worse. At Christmas time, Kathy told her brother that she had made sure that Chaz would not get a penny of her money in the event of her death. She said she was still smarting from the fact that Chaz had emptied their joint bank account in the midst of her impeachment proceedings. Ooh, that's not a good sign. No. She confided in her brother that she had thrown him out, I mean, full-on clothes-on-the-front-yard breakup movie style, but <laughs> had eventually decided to take him back. Though she said she would never again trust him with money. Meanwhile, Chaz spending all of Kathy's money wasn't the only nefarious thing he was up to. He had struck up a sexy flirtation with a 21-year-old admitting clerk at the hospital. <sighs> Though the couple would only admit to sharing one brief illicit kiss in a car... The email trail would show an undeniable emotional and sexual connection between the two. At some point, Kathy discovered the emails, or at least the ones Chaz had failed to delete, and she pulled some strings at the hospital to have Linda fired for using the hospital's email system for personal communications. Wow. 
Meanwhile, Chaz was telling his twin, Mike, that the impeachment and resulting political ostracization had just about killed Kathy and that she was taking it all out on him. Kathy was also emailing Mike to complain as well. Mike was ended up being like some kind of marital counselor for the troubled two. And in as early as April of 2004, Kathy told Mike that she believed Chaz wanted out of their marriage and that he had said to her that he was unhappy with the chemistry between them and had never been sexually attracted to Kathy. Oh my God, harsh. Super harsh. She cried to Mike that Chaz had told her he hadn't even been happy on the day they got married. Well, then why'd you marry her? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> why, why did you do this? <gasps> what? I mean, money. Money. Yeah, I mean, she inherited all of Chuck's assets. And apparently his pension was really good. I mean, he ended up making like a hundred grand a year just on his pension. Yeah. He dedicated his like entire life to (laughs) being a pilot and keeping people safe and like was a vet as well. So yeah, absolutely. So maybe that was the reason. He also said that he hated the political events. He told this to his twin brother, Mike. Many people regarded him and treated him as if he was just Kathy's arm candy and like talked over him like he was an idiot. And he especially hated it after Kathy's impeachment when she kept demanding that they go to all of these political functions. But people were avoiding her like the Black Plague because of her impeachment. And so she had come home crying that no one wanted to talk to her or sit with her. And he's like, why do we have to do this? Why are you doing this and making yourself miserable, you know? The final straw for Chaz was when Kathy allegedly promised him that the misery wasn't worth it and that she was going to stay out of politics to save their marriage. But then she totally reneged by running for the office of the Nevada state treasurer. Now, those closest to Kathy say that she would have never agreed to drop out of politics and that Chaz had to be making that up because it was her life. And they were like, there was no way she would have agreed to that. Okay. They said in spite of the impeachment or maybe even because of it, she was dying to get back into the arena and prove herself. And she still had dreams of being a congresswoman. Chaz was disgusted and his coworkers were beginning to share his distaste for the overbearing politician. She had rubbed Chaz colleagues the wrong way several times. First of all, you know, the guy is an ER nurse and she had made a habit of calling the hospital five to six times per shift. Stop it. Can you imagine doing that to your mom? So much. So much every shift. So when one receptionist tried to explain that Chaz was much too busy to come to the phone. He's and an then, ER nurse. <laughs> yeah. Then she put Kathy on hold. Kathy reportedly called back and said, I could have your job by the end of the day. Never put me on hold again. Oh, my God. Yeah. Also, when Chaz needed to be hospitalized due to a severe allergic reaction, apparently he was like the opposite of a lot of people. He was allergic to all nuts except for peanuts. So some type of nut had gotten into something he didn't expect and he had a really, really bad, like life-threatening allergic reaction. They rushed him to his hospital and his colleagues said that while he was there and they were like working on 
Chaz, for some reason, Kathy was like talking about herself and her campaign and an event that she had coming up for her campaign that she was like inviting people to. And the nurse in whatever room they were working on Chaz on was like, hey, can we focus on your husband here? Like he just narrowly escaped death. So uh, let's redirect. Oh my God. So embarrassing. Yeah. She also called hospital managers and tried to bully them into changing Chaz's schedule to fit her own and even began to demand that Chaz's paycheck was handed directly to her. Why? I think it had to do with the money stuff. Like she no longer trusted him, meaning she was overseeing all of their accounts, including his paycheck. Then why be in a relationship with someone? Yeah, she was getting very demanding. Even her brother said that they had gone to Italy like as a, you know, a couple's trip, him and his wife with Kathy and Chaz. And Kathy didn't drink and neither did her brother, but his wife enjoyed a glass of wine here and there. So they got like a half bottle to split just between Chaz and Phil's wife. And after like a small, like half glass, he went to pour some more in Chaz's glass and Kathy like put her hand and she's like, he's had enough. Thank you. And Phil said that was like indicative of a lot of their relationship. Like he said he didn't notice that Chaz bristled or anything. He said Chaz was just like, okay. But obviously under the surface, it was bothering him clearly. Yeah, yeah. And though they didn't like Kathy, his colleagues were beginning to get concerned with Chaz's mental health because he seemed absolutely obsessed with his anger at his wife. And they also suspected that he was sneaking around, drinking, and potentially doing drugs at this point too. So he made some comments about Kathy being a bitch. He told one coworker that he wished somebody would just, quote, take care of her. And he told, yeah, another nurse that he would drop her down a mineshaft himself if he didn't have a daughter in Las Vegas. Jesse, let's be real. I think we can all probably up our fruit and veggie game. We've been on a New Year cleanse and it has been all sorts of difficult figuring out how to get more natural fruits and veggies into the everyday diet. Girl, the meal prep is killing me, which is why I'm keeping my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. All of those good veggies and fruits without having to buy $1 million worth of produce. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every day. They have my back with delicious food that's good for me and good for the planet. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door, and it conveniently stays fresh in your freezer. I have been telling Andy so much about how I love these products. I am doing the chickpea and coconut curry harvest bake tonight, and my daughter loved the kale and sweet potato flatbread the other night. Have you tried the broccoli and cheese harvest bowl? It's out of this world. So good. Daily Harvest takes literally minutes to prepare and never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything. And that goes for everything. They have so many delicious options for every time of the day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, or a snack. Daily Harvest has you covered. I think I'm actually going to have the kale and lemongrass bowl right after this. Yum. Daily Harvest is all about preserving and protecting the earth for current and future generations to come. From their recyclable and compostable packaging to investing in organic farming practices and reducing food waste, you can feel good about the choices you're making physically and for the environment. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com lovemurder to get up to $40 off your first box. 
That's dailyharvest.com slash lovemurder for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash lovemurder. When it comes to podcasts covering mystery and murder, Generation Y is a true original. If you're obsessed with crime and unsolved murder cases, this show has it all. Hosts Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, deep dive into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. Andy, you know one of the things I look for most in a true crime show is the rapport between the two hosts and how they both add something to the conversation. Absolutely. It's obviously so important. (laughs) (laughs) In a recent episode, Aaron and Justin look into the case of Lori Dupont. Lori was a well-respected 37-year-old nurse and a single mother. She met a physician named Mark Daniel at work, and the two hit it off and began a secret relationship. But after a while, the romance cooled, and Mark began harassing Lori at work. It turns out Mark had a history of dating and being abusive towards nurses. Lori filed a restraining order, but before a judge could issue it, Mark entered the hospital with a military sword and committed an unthinkable crime. Yikes. Well, these guys are some of the absolute OGs and pioneers in the true crime podcast space. And I think part of that is how much they confront the complexity of the cases with thoughtfulness and empathy. Honestly, this story is crazy, but what I really dig about them is their vibe. It's just so perfect. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Okay, well, this isn't a good track record for Mr. Chaz. It is not. And his words in these secret emails he was writing to Linda were very concerning. Let me read you some excerpts from these emails. Please do. I have to tell you that I have missed you every day since I last saw you, he wrote, referring to Linda's firing earlier in the year. I want you to understand that what I'm dealing with in the other person is incredible. It has been a nightmare. I am planning on leaving every day. I am looking for a place to live. There is so much I want to tell you. I did what I did with us to protect you from her. I did not want to, but I had to. Please write me at, here Chaz gave a new email address. It is a secret email. I miss you. A month later, he wrote... First, I want to say that I miss you. I have missed you every day and thought of you every day since we last spoke. You touched my heart and I want to be with you. I have never let go of the hope of being with you again. I feel so much for you. I want to give you the world. True feelings, true caring, true love only comes around once in a lifetime. I bet you said that to Kathy. (laughs) Let me just say that the other party in this is very vindictive and she has a lot of power. She is incredibly controlling and wants to control everything in her life. She has lost control of me when you came along and she has not regained it since. She has made my life a living hell in the past by manipulation and threats. Chaz apologized again for Linda's firing. It appeared that Chaz had earlier fingered Linda as his illicit email correspondent in order to placate Kathy and save his own job. He goes on to say, I wanted only to protect you. So that is the only reason things happened like they did. It was out of protection for you. I was willing to sacrifice myself so they would not hurt you anymore. Hmm. But after that, I was so hurt from losing you that I made a pact with myself that I would live every day making her life a living hell. I live every day manipulating her and driving her crazy. It is working as she wants to kick me out at the beginning of the year. I hate this woman and I will make her break. It's my quest in life to drive this bitch crazy. 
and it is working. She's losing her mind. Wow. Hubs? Yeah. I don't care anymore what she tries to do to me. I was scared before, but I'm not anymore. I am already gone. I left here when I lost you. I'm only a shell here. I know all of this may sound severe or even a little off, but I will be free and I will be with you. That is what I want. You have my heart. So author Carlton Smith drew attention to the phrase, I was scared before, but not anymore. What would Chaz have to be scared of? Well, some believed what held Chaz and Kathy together was not love, but a mutual crime. It was pretty Ah. suspicious that Chaz was Chuck's nurse and that Chuck had died in the hospital when he had been reportedly getting better before he divorced Kathy, as was his intention. So she still got everything. Hmm. It would certainly seem like Chaz had at least given thought to how he would bump somebody off. On Friday, July 7th, Chaz was working in the dual intensive care cardiac unit with a traveling nurse named Kim Ramey, who specialized in patients with heart problems. She was showing Chaz the ropes when Kathy called him and the two ended up having a very loud argument. When Chaz got off the phone, he told Kim that his wife had somehow found out that he had opened his own Wells Fargo checking account. She's a fucking stalker, he said. I'm looking for an apartment to live in because she's a fucking stalker. She's a bitch and she's a psycho and I want out. Whoa. Yeah. At some point during the conversation, Kim noticed a newspaper that had been left on the desk. It had a story about a wealthy Reno businessman named Darren Mack who had been accused of stabbing his wife to death. So she's making conversation and she's kind of like, man, speaking of bad marriages, geez, you know. And when he looked at the newspaper and saw what she was referring to, he just said, oh, he did it all wrong. If you want to get rid of someone, you just hit him with a little sucks because they can't trace it at the postmortem. And he kind of mimed giving somebody an injection. What's a sucks? Exactly the right question, Andy. Thank you so much for asking. So sex is a nickname for succinylcholine, which I'm going to say a lot in this episode. So if I am pronouncing it incorrectly, my apologies. So succinylcholine is a standard drug available to ER workers throughout the U.S. It's a powerful muscle relaxant that paralyzes every voluntary muscle in the body for a very short window. In ERs, they use it to relax the throat muscles of a patient so they can intubate. When used correctly, it's obviously very helpful, but it does also paralyze the lungs. So if the patient isn't, you know, intubated or ventilated or whatever, they can suffer brain damage within a few minutes from lack of oxygen and then basically like drown because their lungs aren't working, you know? Okay. It's an absolutely horrible way to die. Think about it. You're conscious, but you're helpless and unable to move while you slowly drown in your own lungs. Yeah, no, that sounds terrifying. It sounds like an actual nightmare. So yeah, Chaz was correct about the autopsy. The drug passes through the human body extremely quickly, some say as fast as within 10 minutes, which makes it nearly impossible to detect at a postmortem. Kim later reported that she was shocked at Chaz's cold remark and said, hey, we're supposed to save lives, not take them. That evening, as they both got off the shift, Kim invited Chaz to a going away drinks party that she was having. Her boyfriend was also a traveling nurse, so they often just kind of found posts together and went from place to place. Okay. But she said that he declined, saying that he had to go home to his wife. The very next day was July 8th. 
And at 6.43 in the morning, Chaz Higgs called 911 and reported that his wife, Kathy Augustine, was mysteriously not breathing. Well, thanks for that information, Kim. Mm-hmm. So to reiterate, Chaz called 911. The paramedics heroically brought Kathy back to life and transferred her to the hospital. She remained in a coma, and a neurologist told the Alfano family when they arrived from Southern California that based on the massive swelling on both sides of Kathy's brain, it was very unlikely that she was going to recover. Chaz told the Alfanos that he had woken up early to work on his car, and about 6.30 in the morning, he had brought Kathy a coffee to wake her up and discovered that she wasn't breathing. He had tried to perform CPR, and when she wasn't responding, he had called 911. He believed that it had been a heart attack brought on by Kathy's congenital heart murmur and the stress of a new election. Kathy's brother, Phil, and her parents believed Chaz at first, but Phil began to doubt him when he told Phil that he had just now discovered that Kathy had had barbiturates in her system. And the fact that the drugs were in Kathy's system wasn't, you know, super shocking to Phil, but the fact that he knew Chaz was lying was. He had already talked to another nurse that told him that Chaz had already been informed about the barbiturates the day before Chaz had indicated that he had found out about it. So basically, Phil at this point is thinking, if you'd lie about something like that, what else are you lying about, you know? Yep, yep. Phil became even more alarmed when on Tuesday, July 11th, Kathy's neurologist told him that Chaz had requested to withdraw life support. So the neurologist had been led to believe that this was Phil's decision, his call. And the neurologist came to him and was like, hey, I heard you want to pull the plug, but I don't think you should. I think we should run another EEG just to see if there's any like brain activity we can bring her back at all. And Phil was aghast. He's like, what are you talking about? Of course, I don't want to pull the plug. Like, I absolutely want another EEG. Like, why would you get that idea? And he's like, oh, Chaz told me last night that you guys were ready. So Phil's like, what the fuck about that, right? Yeah. And then, you know, because Kathy is obviously a very newsworthy public figure, the fact that she was in a coma became like front page news. And eventually Kim Ramey saw that Kathy was in a coma by watching the nightly news. And so she immediately, of course, had chills run down her entire body. Her first thought, of course, was, did Chaz hit his wife with a shot of sucks? Yep, probably. So she was really freaked out. She didn't want to report this to the police at first. She was just like upset. She was like, you know, second guessing everything. She's like, am I going crazy? Am I reading too much into this? And after many tears and prodding by her boyfriend and also her boss, who was a cardiologist, Kim did report the conversation she had to the police. And she reported it in a very timely manner. It was like a couple hours that she thought about it, you know? Okay, good. Yeah. So she told the police to test for succinylcholine if they were able to. A detective named Dave Jenkins took the call and he headed to the hospital to see what he could find out about Kathy's condition. When he was at the hospital, he ran into a nurse that he was friendly with who had been luckily assigned to Kathy. So he asked her if it could have been intentional succinylcholine poisoning. And when he asked her this, I guess she turned completely white. She said, oh my God, that fits because what we have so far is not typical of a heart attack at all. All of the tests, including the angiogram, had turned up negative for heart attack so far. 
Detective Jenkins immediately called the county coroner to demand a mandatory autopsy for Kathy, whose death did seem imminent at this point. Unfortunately for Kathy and her loved ones, he was correct, and Kathy died that very day at 4.35 p.m., surrounded by her brothers, her parents, her daughter Dallas, and her husband Chaz. Immediately, her body was collected for autopsy. Later that evening, the coroner's investigator returned to pick up frozen biological samples taken while Kathy was still alive. One of those samples was urine, and it would turn out to contain definitive proof that Kathy had been poisoned and also raise the possibility that the same had happened to Chuck Augustine only a couple years before. Ah. So at this point, you'd imagine that Chaz had to be on pins and needles, but he also had to be pretty sure that he was correct in the fact that it cycles through your body so quickly. I don't think he knew that they had taken samples from her when she first arrived at the hospital. So he was probably feeling fairly good about his chances of getting away with it at this point. So he was staying at the Las Vegas house with Dallas and her girlfriend in preparation for Kathy's funeral at this point. And this was when a rift started between Kathy's family. Basically, it was Kathy's parents and brothers on one side and Chaz, Dallas, and Dallas's girlfriend, Jesse, on the other side. So Jesse and Dallas had met at a bar several months before Kathy died, and they were now a seriously committed couple. Jesse was very interestingly a lot like Kathy. She was 17 years older than Dallas. And, you know, since Kathy had Dallas when she was only 23, that made her only a few years younger than Kathy to begin with. Yep. yep. She was also blonde with a very similar haircut and style. And she was very, very ambitious, just like Kathy was. So Dallas had had some issues keeping a job and Jesse kind of swept in and swept her off her feet and kind of helped her out because she was like a total lady boss. Jesse looks so much like Kathy that when I was Googling to look at pictures, there was a picture of Jesse and I, I thought it was a picture of Kathy. Stop, really? Yeah, I am not even going to get into what the Freud is going on there. But Dallas and Jesse were staying with Chaz, and apparently the threesome were drinking their faces off. So the Alfanos were getting upset because Dallas and Chaz were using Kathy's credit cards. Like Dallas came in and she was drunk, and she was like, I just bought myself an Amani suit on mom's cards and stuff like that. Ew. So they're like, Yeah, what are you guys doing? And the conflict was heightened by the fact that, you know, her brother Phil suspected Chaz of foul play, but also because Kathy had told her mother Kay before she died that Chaz was cheating on her. So, of course, her mother who's grieving is like, I know that asshole was cheating on my daughter and here he is getting drunk with her daughter and just acting like a general jerk, you know? Yeah. yeah. So basically at this point... Phil pulled Chaz aside and he's like, look, my mom knows about, you know, the other women. She's really sensitive right now. Obviously, she just lost Kathy. Can you please just stay in a hotel room before the funeral and we'll get through it so that the household isn't disturbed, you know? Yep. Completely understandable request. 
100%. Yeah. Yeah. So Chaz was apparently a little lit and he like got up in Phil's face and was like, no, you get out of my house. And Phil's like, well, if you want to be technical about it, it's not your house because guess what? Kathy didn't leave shit to you. She let everything to Dallas. At which point Dallas got involved drunkenly and started screaming at her uncle and her grandparents and told them to get the fuck out. And she was like, well, it is my house and I'm telling you to get the fuck out. So she kicked her grandparents who are like in their late 70s, I think at this point, yeah, out of the home. And at some point, like Chaz like slammed a door and Jesse thought that he like shot himself or someone. It was like this melee of a mess. And there was so much fighting that spilled out into the street that some of the neighbors actually called the police. Yeah. So Chuck's friend and neighbor, John Satora, said that he was struck by deja vu when this was happening. He said that three years earlier, Kathy had kicked out Chuck's family at his wake. And now Dallas, like mother, like daughter, I guess, was kicking out Kathy's family right before her funeral. So the Alfanos had to even go to John Satoris's house and stay there while they called to try to find a hotel that had openings for them. This is just way too much to deal with when you're burying your child. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Meanwhile, the autopsy had uncovered an unaccounted for puncture mark on Kathy's butt Stop cheek. Stop it. Stop. Mm-hmm. They think later on that Chaz told Kathy that it was a B12 shot and that he instead injected her with the sucks. Whoa. Yeah. That's what they believe happened. So they have this puncture mark that is not accounted for because obviously, you know, with the hospitalization, she has other puncture marks, you know, but there was no reason one should have been on her butt cheek. Also, there was no evidence of long-term heart disease or anything that indicated she had had a heart attack like Chaz was trying to allege. So they started investigating Kathy's death as a homicide and naturally Chaz was a person of interest. Greg Augustine found out about, you know, the fact that they were now looking into Kathy's death as a homicide, and he begged them to exhume his father as well because (gasps) he believed that Chaz had also killed his father and his father had never had an autopsy. So Vegas detectives tracked down Chaz at the Vegas house and started putting the screws to him. Though Chaz continued to deny that he had anything to do with Kathy's death, The next morning after his questioning, he attempted to commit suicide by slashing his wrists. Dallas found him in the bathtub bleeding at 10 a.m. and called 911. The doctor said that the cuts were fairly small given all things and that he had lost less than a cup of blood. So he was going to be totally fine. Yeah. And did he get like rushed to the ER that he worked at? He got rushed to a different ER at his request. He didn't want to be treated by his colleagues. So he also told the doctors when he arrived that he had taken three Vicodin with a bottle of wine, which is definitely not enough to kill you. Well, you're not supposed to do that. I definitely know people who have probably taken three Vicodin with a bottle of wine and just been blotto, you know? So he claimed at the hospital because he was put under psychiatric care that he had tried to commit suicide to be with his wife. Okay. Some doubted the seriousness of the attempt. Kathy's brothers especially thought that a critical care nurse would have known where and how deeply to cut to actually kill himself. 
Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, they thought that the attempt was just a ploy for sympathy. It also could have been to get out of going to her funeral, which was the next day. So Chaz did indeed miss Kathy's funeral, which was attended by over 200 people. The rift between Dallas and her family continued, and apparently they barely spoke at the funeral. And I guess Dallas kind of just blocked them and stopped speaking to them for whatever reason. Really? Yeah. And Phil said this was strange because she had originally told him that she also suspected that Chaz had had something to do with Kathy's death. And then she did like a 180 and was like all on Chaz's side for whatever reason. Meanwhile, back in Reno, the coroner's office was having a hell of a time trying to determine conclusively that Kathy had been poisoned and especially poisoned by Chaz with sucks. Despite the fact that sucks is a controlled substance, it is readily available in ERs across the country. And it's something that is used for emergency purposes, so they, it doesn't have to be like specially signed out, you know? Yep. Succinylcholine eventually metabolizes as succinyl monocholine, which I guess can also occur in bodies that have been embalmed. So it's very hard to determine, especially after death and, you know, embalming, if succinylcholine poisoning had actually occurred. Yeah. There was also a legal precedent that made proving this type of poisoning in court very difficult. So I'm going to use how Carlton Smith kind of summed up the previous legal cases and how previously scientists and toxicologists had found succinylcholine in bodies. So about succinylcholine, the detective Jenkins later said, it's on the crash cart. It's in the ICU refrigerator. There's some in every surgical unit in the hospital, essentially on every ward. And the consensus of all the nurses that I spoke to was that as a nurse, if they had some nefarious criminal intent, they would have very little difficulty secreting succinylcholine out of the hospital. In other words, anyone with free access to a wide variety of hospital areas could easily pocket a vial of sucks and walk away with it with no one the wiser. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. The fact that succinylcholine so quickly metabolizes to succinyl monocholine and then largely to choline and succinic acid makes it extremely difficult to detect, as Chad had observed. While it can be detected in controlled experiments, its discovery in a poisoned person is virtually impossible for the simple reason that by the time the victim receives medical attention, the compound has completely disappeared, leaving only succinyl monocholine as evidence of its passage. Thus, for years, the discovery of mono, which is what they're calling succinyl monocholine, at an autopsy was considered by pathologists to be proof positive that somebody had been poisoned by sucks. But even the discovery of mono was rare. Unless a pathologist had reason to look for it, it was not a subject of routine toxicological testing. So there was a couple cases that involved someone murdering somebody with succinylcholine already. One of them was a Florida physician in the 1960s who was an anesthesiologist who was charged with using sucks to poison the husband of his lover in New Jersey in 1963 and then his own wife in Florida two years later. Whoa. Mm -hmm. That doctor ended up serving time. There was another doctor in Florida 
called Dr. William Sybers, who was accused of using sexnolcholine to murder his wife in 1991 in Panama City. So apparently he was also the pathologist for this whole county. So they had to bring another pathologist in, obviously, to do his wife's autopsy, but she had already been embalmed by the time the new forensic pathologist came to look at her because obviously okay. her husband, the county pathologist, had said she's, she, you know, she died of natural causes, embalm her. So five months later, the new doctor determined that she had not died of natural causes and that they believed that she had been poisoned, though they were having a hard time figuring out what exact poison had been used. So essentially, they did figure out that it was succinylcholine, and they had a guy named Dr. Kevin Ballard, who was a doctor with a PhD in pharmacology, run some tests, and he explained his process and how he discovered the mono in tissue samples that was left behind after the succinylcholine, and he essentially said that that proved that at one point, succinylcholine had been in the body, but this ended up being controversial and easily clouded with reasonable doubt because there was some evidence that maybe the embalming process, which the woman had already been embalmed, could result in the same compound in the body. Okay. Because of that, his original conviction ended up getting thrown out. So there's legal precedent around the trickiness of discovering this particular poison. But the situation with Kathy was totally different. In that previous case, the Cybers case, it had involved tissue samples from a person who was already deceased and embalmed, where the samples taken from Kathy had been obtained while she was still alive, even though she was in a coma. Yep. Okay. And there was absolutely no embalming and no decomposition. So her samples had actually been collected literally like minutes after she got to the hospital. So the poison could very easily have still been in her body. If that were the case, there was no way in the world that succinylcholine could have gotten into her system except by deliberate injection since succinylcholine is not a natural substance. So the Clark County coroner packed up all of the frozen biological samples and sent them to the FBI lab where an FBI toxicologist named Madeline Montgomery determined that while there was no succinylcholine found in the tissue that they had extracted from around the puncture wound, there was indeed succinylcholine found in Kathy's urine sample. And there was only one person that could have injected her with it. Her husband, Nurse Chas Higgs. Based on the presence of the drug, the puncture mark, and the fact that a medical professional like Chaz hadn't put his wife on the ground to administer CPR as his proper procedure, as well as his comments to fellow nurse Kim Ramey, Chaz Higgs was tracked down in Hampton, Virginia, where he was staying with his brother, and arrested. He was extradited to Nevada, yep, where he would stand trial for Kathy's murder. Now, the Las Vegas authorities had to find out whether they were going to be trying Chaz for one murder or for two. So they exhumed Chuck's body to find evidence. But here's the rub. Chuck was found to have definitely had a big 
cardiopulmonary episode, obviously. But we also knew that that happened because of some damage inflicted by the multiple strokes. Yep. But they also found succinyl monocholine in his body, which of course is left behind when people are injected with sucks. But there was no way to determine if it was a result of succinylcholine poisoning or the embalming process, which, of course, had come up in that previous case. So to this day, it remains a mystery if Chuck was indeed killed the same way that Kathy was. Bummer. Yeah, and they were never able to charge Chaz with Chuck's murder. Chuck's son, Greg, does believe that Chuck was killed by Chaz, and he believes that it was at Kathy's request. He said, I think they did it so they could go happily ever after away together. Greg believes that when happily ever after didn't happen, Chaz had to kill Kathy to keep her quiet about the murder he had committed for her and for Chuck's money. So Chaz's trial was set to begin on June 18th, 2007, and the defense tried to get the FBI toxicologist result thrown out arguing that the process that she had undertaken was experimental. But fortunately for Kathy's loved ones, it did not work. The toxicology results stayed in, which was good because that's a huge part of the prosecution's case, obviously. So trial got rolling and in opening statements, the prosecutor, which was a guy named Prosecutor Barb, told the jury that they would hear from Kim Ramey about how Chaz had told her only the day before Kathy went into a coma how he would kill someone with sucks. And then they would hear from an FBI toxicologist who proved that that exact drug had been detected in Kathy's urine. The prosecutor went on to say that they would also be hearing from Chaz's coworkers about how much he loathed his wife. And the jury would even hear from Linda, the woman Chaz had really wanted to be with. Naturally, all of those people took the stand and said pretty much exactly that, with poor Linda having to read Chaz's cringy emails out loud to the court. You always love it when that happens. I do. I just, it really makes me think that, like, we shouldn't be cheating. We shouldn't be writing cringy things to each other. You know, it's all going to come out somehow, you know? Yep. Especially when you're a murderer. (laughs) When you're a murderer, it really comes out. Yeah. The defense countered that Chaz and Kathy had been extremely happy until the impeachment and Kathy's ostracization from the political arena had shattered her persona and their marriage. They contended that Kathy had been depressed and stressed and took it out on Chaz, who harmlessly vented to his co-workers as people in unhappy marriages are wont to do. They said that Chaz wanted to leave her, but it was love and compassion that kept him by her side through her darkest days to essentially get her through the impeachment. But as she healed and began to get excited about the new election, he was preparing to leave, as evidenced by him getting his own bank account and looking at apartments. But then Kathy tragically died, which had nothing to do with Chaz is what they're saying. Mm Mm-hmm. The defense opined that there was absolutely no motive for Chaz to kill Kathy. He said that he knew that Kathy was leaving everything to Dallas. Now, we don't know for sure if he did actually know that. You know, obviously, they went into all of their emails and all of their written correspondence that they could possibly find. There was no evidence in these written correspondences that he knew that. But he said he knew later on. So they were saying that the motive couldn't be money because he wasn't going to get any. 
Also, that his salary as a nurse was nearly as high as Kathy's and that he had been divorced three times before. So clearly he had no problem walking away. So they're like, what would be the point, you know? Yeah. Also, the whole point is that he killed her to keep his secret about death, not necessarily for the money. Yes, indeed. And see, they could not bring that up because there was no proof that he had killed Chuck. They couldn't even try him. So unfortunately, the prosecutor could not actually go for that angle, which I think was the correct one, you know? Chaz took the stand in his own defense and denied that he had killed Kathy or Chuck for that matter, although he stated it weirdly. In direct examination with his own attorney, he was asked whether Kathy killed Chuck and he said no, but he did not say whether he had killed Chuck. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, he claimed that he had been madly in love with Kathy at the beginning of their relationship, but that the roller coaster of her political life had ended the joy in the marriage. When she didn't quit politics like she had allegedly promised, he began to prepare to leave. Chaz said that he believed that it was possible that Kathy had been murdered by dirty politicians that she had been investigating. Oh my God. Yeah, he was trying to throw this back to that Uh comment that guy said to her when she was sworn in. Mm-hmm. Yep. As far as the CPR went, he said he panicked upon finding his wife not breathing and immediately began administering CPR on the bed, not thinking clearly enough to put her on the hard floor as, as a protocol. Yeah, as an ER nurse. Sure. Yeah. And also the uh, 911 operator testified that they did not believe that he was actually administering yeah. CPR yeah. based on how he sounded on the phone. Now, Chaz said all of this under direct examination, like I said, with his own attorney, and he was expected to face cross-examination by the prosecutor early the next morning, but that didn't happen because, once again, Chaz attempted to commit suicide. Oh my God, where? At the time of the trial, Chaz was out on bail, and he was living in a rental apartment with his mother, Shirley, who found Chaz in the early wee hours of the morning on the kitchen floor after having slit his wrists with a kitchen knife. Yeah. Shirley, who did and still does loyally believe in Chaz's innocence, said that Chaz felt like he had cleared his name during his own testimony, that his work was done on earth, and that he wanted to join his wife in the afterlife. Kathy's brother, Phil, less charitably believed that he had once again half-heartedly cut his wrists in another ploy for sympathy. Well, Prosecutor Barb believed maybe it had been a genuine attempt because he thought that Chaz was afraid of being cross-examined. There was another possibility as well, although I don't know if Chaz was this legally savvy, but when the you know, suicide attempt happened, there was a big discussion about whether it was going to necessitate a mistrial. Okay. Ultimately, the judge decided to temporarily suspend the trial and revoke Chaz's bail so he would be placed back in custody and under suicide watch. Smart, smart, smart. Yeah. After a remarkable recovery, Chaz returned to the stand with arms visibly bandaged to face the prosecutor. So Chaz did admit in cross-examination that he had not left the house that morning and he had no reason to believe somebody could have entered the home to inject Kathy with sucks, thus negating the whole shadowy politicians killed her theory. He also claimed to have never told Kim Ramey how he would kill someone, alleging that she had somehow made the whole thing up completely and just must have 
randomly uh-huh. known how somebody else was going to kill Kathy because she's a psychic, I guess. Yeah, you know? total psychic. When questioned about all the times that he had claimed to be so in love with his wife, Prosecutor Barb made him admit to some cruel things that he had said about and to Kathy. Prosecutor Barb said, your reputation as a loving husband got shot when you called her fat and disgusting, didn't it? Ooh, coming in for Chaz. Chaz was on the stand and he said, well, she had put on almost 20 pounds, sir. No filter. No filter. That's it. Lock him up. Lock him up. up. (laughs) Right away. Lock him up. Barb also highlighted Chaz's changing story and the timeline of events on the morning that he found Kathy not breathing. He had like said at one point he went for a drive and then he had changed that. And and then he stuck to his story that he was home. He said at one point he brought her coffee. Like that's what he told her family. And then he said he didn't bring her coffee because there was no coffee in the room, you know, when they looked at the scene. So he had changed his story several times. In closing statements, Prosecutor Barb said, All the way through Chaz's testimony, it was poor me, poor me. The best he could do was say, I loved her and I wanted to be with her. It just makes no sense. You heard Kathy Augustine painted in very unhappy colors, he said. But even if she was a bad sort, even if she was a, quote, bitch, the penalty for being a bitch is not death. You don't get to kill her just because she's not nice to you. Which I want to say to you guys, you know, it's very hard to you know, write a podcast about a victim that's maybe not so likable because we never want to steer into any territory where we are victim blaming at all, you know, or speaking poorly of the dead. But, you know, I got to tell you guys the truth and these things were the truth. But at the same time, being an asshole does not mean that you should get murdered. It means maybe you should lose your job, but you should not get murdered. We can all agree on that. We can definitely agree on that. After three hours of deliberation, the jury found Chaz Higgs guilty of Kathy's murder. Before sentencing, an expert anesthesiologist detailed what it would be like to die of no, succinylcholine poisoning. No, 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 no. Oh, oh, oh. oh yes, I'm going to read it to you, Andrea. Oh, God. Okay, so this is from Poison Love by Carlton Smith, and this is what the anesthesiologist said. Anyone given the compound would immediately suffer a massive taut spasm of muscles, which would last for 30 to 60 seconds. After that, there would be total voluntary muscle paralysis. The paralysis would wear off within 15 to 17 minutes. Is it painful? Yes, she said. Usually we give it with another muscle relaxant. Every single muscle and bone hurts from the massive muscle contractions. Anyone given the drug could hear, smell, and see, she said. If they wanted to scream, they wouldn't be able to open their mouth. They can't breathe, she said. So terrifying. It really is like a recurring nightmare that people have. A person dosed with succinylcholine would know they were going to die, she said. You will continue to feel things for six to ten minutes. After that, your brain begins to die. Anyone injected with a compound not given oxygen would feel pure terror, she said. It would be like drowning without a chance to come up for air. So Chaz was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison with the possibility of parole someday. Oh. His family maintains that it was not a fair trial, especially his mother. His mother's very outspoken about 
her son's innocence. And Chaz has continued to appeal the decision, but so far, unsuccessfully, and in prison in Nevada is where he remains. Author Carlton Smith believes that Chaz's plan was thwarted by the paramedic being able to resuscitate Kathy. Had she actually died before reaching the hospital, there would have been no time for Kim Ramey to raise the alarm, nor would any biological materials from when she was still alive been able to be tested. Yep, yep. It wow, was it very, was really like timing, like saved by timing. Yeah, and that paramedic, Ben Pratt, like shout out to Ben Pratt, oh, man. He, seriously, he it. it just makes me so sad that like resources are used for stuff like this. You know what I mean? For people like, killing yeah. their wives? Yeah. Yeah. And Guys, as, as someone who's like, uh, you know, like he's an ER nurse and sees all this trauma that comes in and knows like how important time is and like someone else could have been actually like having a heart attack or a stroke and like. And of course, she was bumped right up to the top and given the best treatment because yeah. she was a government official. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you have a really good point. And I mean, this was very nearly a perfect murder. Yeah. If he hadn't opened his mouth the day before. Exactly. That always, I mean, people running their mouths always, uh, it always happens. It always yep. trips them up. Yeah. So this story is unbelievably not over yet. Five years later, the Alfano family would suffer another tragedy. Dallas and Jesse were married in September of 2007, shortly after Chaz's conviction, but the union was far from blissful. Bill Olfano said that Dallas had cut off all contact with the family after the trial and that he believed that there was potentially some substance abuse going on with Dallas, as well as maybe some mental health issues. So Jesse and Dallas had fought often. There was jealousy issues. There was also issues with Dallas being somewhat chronically unemployed. So they had several reoccurring fights. There was allegedly a fight that happened when they were still living in Las Vegas together where Dallas had hit Jesse as well. Oh, no. So it sounds like there was some domestic abuse going on. So Dallas eventually trained as a corrections officer, and the couple moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where she found work. Unfortunately, their problems were far from over when they moved, they had kind of moved for a fresh start. In 2012, 32-year-old Dallas met a 21-year-old woman at a bar and ended up going home with her for a one-night stand. The next day, the 21-year-old attempted to extort Dallas, believing her to be rich, and she told Dallas that she would tell Jesse about the affair if she did not give her a sizable amount of money. Oh, she already knew about the partner. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. There's a, um episode of Deadly Affairs on Investigation Discovery Channel about this. And I think it was the only program that I could find that covered both Kathy's murder and the situation I'm telling you about now. So it's good, but it is definitely one of those kind of love, scorn, kills, cheesy reenactments, yeah. just the bare brushstrokes of the case, no details, you know? Yeah, yeah. So Dallas was broke at this point and she was out of options. So she ended up confessing the one night stand to Jesse before the other woman could. And Jesse went understandably apeshit and threw Dallas out of the house. Okay. 
Both Dallas and Jesse wrote about the infidelity and the heartbreaking separation on their Facebook pages. Like, especially, I guess, like, Jesse got this, like, apology letter from Dallas and, like, posted it on her own Facebook, which is, oh, really messy. Yeah. Eventually, though, for whatever reason, Jesse took Dallas back, which was a mistake. One day, you know, a little bit after this reunion, Jesse arrived home from work at 6 p.m. to discover that Dallas hadn't gone to work and that she'd been day drinking. She was frustrated and exhausted by having to police her wife's behavior. Yeah. And instead of like yelling some more, she just started drinking too heavily. She was like, I guess I'll just catch up with you, you know? And it was... Not a good situation. I guess that Jesse was like in touch with some friends or family talking about it via text. And also the neighbors heard the two drunkenly fighting until two or three in the morning. At one point, Jesse packed an overnight bag and seemingly told Dallas that she was leaving. The next day, a family member of Jesse's called the Phoenix police to request a welfare check on the couple as they hadn't been able to get in touch with Jesse all day. At 8.30 p.m., officers arrived on the property to find both women dead of an apparent murder-suicide. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was so stunned when I found this out. I was actually Googling pictures of Kathy, and that's when I accidentally found the picture that I thought was Kathy that was actually Jesse. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, and I clicked on like a wedding photo of them, and it opened up an article about this, and I was like, holy shit. Yeah, that's wild. Oh my God. Yeah, so based on the scene, the officers deduced that there had been obviously a fight. It looked like Jesse had packed a bag because it was Jesse's clothes and Jesse's makeup bag in her overnight bag. And it appeared, based on where the overnight bag had dropped, that they believed that Jesse was going towards the door to leave when she was shot by Dallas. And then Dallas essentially dragged her over to like the back of a couch or some sort of seating situation and sat her up. And then Dallas sat down next to her and shot herself and the gun fell between the two women. Okay. How unbelievably tragic. So sad. Super duper sad. I mean, it's just, it's super weird too, because Jesse was 50 years old. She was the exact same age that Kathy had been when she was killed. Whoa. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. There's no Wikipedia fun fact. There's no silver lining to this one. This one is just a lot of terrible people doing terrible things, minus Chuck and Jesse, of course, and a lot of patterns of cruelty that resulted in really, really, really bad things. Murder. Yeah. Murder. The worst thing. Yeah. Okay. In conclusion, I just don't think it's a good idea to marry so quickly three weeks after your husband's death, especially when it's to your husband's nurse. Yeah, who you were playing footsie with at the hospital. Not a good look. Absolutely not. You know what else isn't a good look is just being an overall horrible person to your staff all the time. Like, how about... yeah. You're a public figure. You should be nice. People are going to be talking about you. I absolutely think you're right, Andy. And I just wish that we could all 
demonstrate a little bit of more kindness, whether you're a public figure or not. It's like really hard out there yeah. <laughs> these days. And we would all benefit from just, you know, extending a little benefit of the doubt and being kind, unless you suspect somebody of murder and then give them hell and don't relent. <laughs> True. <laughs> And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.